You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The price of everything post-pandemic has gone up, and for those who drive taxi cabs, it's getting harder and harder to make ends meet. We talked to Dale Evans, CEO of Charlie's Taxi, this week. She believes the taxi industry ought to be deregulated. The meter rates haven't changed since 2013, and in that time, she tells us the number of drivers have dropped from more than 1,000 to just a couple of hundred here on Oahu. The Blanchardi administration is poised to hike the rates, but the company's fear relief won't come soon enough. Evans says drivers have seen the competition from Uber and Lyft and the bureaucratic government system eat away at their profits. Drivers are charged a state fee to drop off at parks like Diamond Head or at the airport. Evans is calling for an overhaul of the system. The pandemic shutdown was hard enough, now soaring costs, just making it worse. She calls it an industry in crisis with the added pressures of the transportation network companies in the mix. Well, the thing is that the uh, the bill, uh, Mayor Caldwell's Bill 44 in 2016, allows the TNCs to charge whatever. They have no rate regulations whatsoever. So they can do what is called surge pricing which means that the prices can change in minutes or several times an hour or even seconds. But the taxi industry has to wait nine years or 10 years for another rate increase. The formula that they have is not based on actual business costs. It's just a consumer price index called the um, transportation component. And the thing is, it changes every two months, okay? So it's been uh, 15 months since the rate increase was supposed to be installed. And now it's 15 months as of August, and they're telling me that they're not going to have a rate increase until November, which means that there's going to be two more changes in the index. But the thing is that what I'm saying is that the delay is really caused because they are having a narrow interpretation of how to fix rates. Have you lost taxi drivers? About 60% of the taxi drivers have left the business. More than 50% of the taxi companies have gone out of business. The industry is in crisis. The thing is that I've written to the mayor over two dozen letters. And the thing is that uh, this, and this goes back to the Caldwell administration, actually, and prior. But the thing is that they use an excuse about the um, consumer price index. But the thing is that if you read the ordinance, the... uh, the director sets, has the authority to set the rates. They have something where they can refer to, but it doesn't mean that they're limited to that's how to set the rates. And, and the thing is that the taxi drivers, really, when I, they tell me, they feel that, that they're being treated unfairly, discriminated against, that the big business has all the attention, and yet even though during the whole pandemic they came to work, they braved the pandemic, Even today, when people are calling and they have COVID sickness, other companies refuse to service them. My drivers do. The thing is that they just feel unappreciated. And the thing is that this is totally ridiculous that they have to wait uh, nine years for a fare increase. I'm talking about uh, not only the fare increase, the meter increase. I'm talking about the cost, the airport fees, the general excise tax, the diamond head fee is $15 to pick up a customer. And these, the, the um, ordinance prohibits the drivers from passing on those costs, which means that an airport driver who pays $5 at 3 o'clock in the morning to pick up essential service passengers, he has to lose 16% of his income because the state charges $5 to pick up and the GE tax is 4.7%, that's another $2. So the driver ends up with $36 instead of $44. It's not fair. And the situation is that these are state entities that are tacking on these fees, right? Right. To pick and up the a thing diamond is that head. These are, like the general excise tax allows, the state allows the businesses to pass it on. But because the, the city interprets that they can prohibit whatever charges are, they just don't allow uh, the drivers to follow the law. But basically, the state law, to me, supersedes county laws. And so what would you like to see the city do? I want the cities to not regulate rates. Don't tell us how to run our business. The thing is that rate laws, the price controls are archaic. 
we need to be able to set our set our own business. We cannot depend on politicians. Whenever we talk about uh, needing this or that, number one, we have to get their attention. Number two, they think that they're doing us a favor just to meet and talk about it. The thing is that we cannot be running our business when airlines and hotels and PNCs are able to run their business without government interference. You believe that the current laws need to be overhauled to accommodate the changes in the marketplace? Yes, I think that they should repeal, and we've asked the mayor to repeal the ordinance that price controls the taxi fares. What has the Blanjardi administration told you about a rate change? I understand that they want to raise the meter fare uh, based on the the May CPI index, but that won't happen until November. But I understand that they are only talking about raising the meter. They don't care about the cost of taxes and the pickup fees. I just want to make this point that the airport fees and the taxes is about $1,200 a year, okay? That is three times the cost of the commercial insurance. That is two times the cost of car payments a year. These people are not dumb. So I have to wonder why they are so cruel or mean to the taxi drivers. You just want a a level playing field so they can earn a living. And the thing is that, you know, during the pandemic, they were working, and even now some of them are working below minimum wage. And yet they don't care uh, that, uh, that the drivers not only have to support their families, they have to pay for health insurance. Health insurance for families costs about $1,500. You know, they, they don't care about the um, welfare of the essential services. The taxi drivers are essential services. Do you have a number of your drivers that are playing, you know, both sides of the fence, that are working for you and then also driving for Uber or Lyft? No, we won't. We won't do that. Number one is forbidden by law. And number two, I don't want uh, to pay for the uh, Uber uh, trip accidents. In other words, the Uber insurance only covers if it is uh, a personal automobile. Our drivers are using commercial vehicles, so it says clearly in their contracts that they only cover personal automobiles. So the thing is that everything that I am doing in order to um, improve the uh, loss ratio of our drivers is down the drain because the thing is that we'd be responsible for Uber trips. I don't want to do that. Okay. And Uber and Lyft are trying to compensate their drivers, I think, 50 cents a trip, uh, which isn't a lot, but at least that's something. But the thing is, even the fuel surcharge, since they did it in uh, 2008, I think it was, the thing is that if it's only 30 cents, the thing is that in order to make up the $2.25 difference, the thing is that the driver has to do 33 trips. So if you go one three miles, you have to pay $0.30 cents for fuel surcharge. If you go 30 miles, you have to pay only $0.30 cents for fuel surcharge. Wait, wait, it just a, a point of clarification. So is there a fuel surcharge built into this, the city ordinance or no? Yes, in 2008, but it hasn't changed since. So in 2008, the laws got changed to allow for a fuel surcharge, mm-hmm. but that doesn't match up with the inflation. No, and it hasn't changed. The uh, fuel surcharge only 30 cents per trip. The drivers don't uh, impose it because they're going to get into argument and talk, talk, have to explain to the customers, and the customers are going to say, what, you know? So, don't charge it. So while the ordinance allows the drivers to charge $0.30 cents per trip a fuel surcharge, they don't often, often do it. Too small. Just think of this. Before COVID mm-hmm. and before this uh, Bill 44, the taxi industry used to have the equivalent of the fire department and the police department. Just imagine if the police department was reduced to one-third of what it is. Taxis are essential services. Why don't they care? That was an exasperated Dale Evans, CEO of Charlie's Taxi, talking about what she says is the unfair treatment of taxi drivers who provide an essential service. The industry has been on the decline with the entry of transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft, who use surge pricing to raise rates. Look for the Blanjardi administration to introduce a bill to raise the taxi meter rates. 
the information the city provided us shows that the current rate is $6.65 for the first mile, $3.60 for each additional mile. The city's considering a hike to $8.30 for the first mile and $4.48 thereafter. The city's customer service uh, office says that a bill will be introduced soon with public hearings set for later this fall. Affordable housing and long wait lists. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Cassie Ordonio on the line today. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, you know, and I was helping a friend look for a rental, so I've been, you know, checking the prices of things, and boy, it's steep. It is, and the fact that Urban Honolulu has surpassed um, the average rent of more than 2000 I know we were talking earlier that, you know, you can't be too picky, but also you'd be lucky to find um, an, a, a rental for under 2000 a month. Yeah, so for your story, you looked at affordable rentals uh, that the city has? Yeah, and the city keeps an inventory of about 20 affordable rentals. That's not also um, the whole list. Um, we're also including those from the nonprofit or um, private companies, but um, those are managed by the um, uh, land development department. But um, most of those affordable rentals are actually already filled up, and with property managers are telling me they're at full capacity with the wait list, about maybe 30 to 50 people. But they also have to wait between six months to up to three years. So these lists are, are really long. Yeah, and for those who are also in um, certain situations waiting for affordable housing units to open up, they're either in a um, compacted situation or overcrowded situation on the break of homelessness or you know their lease might be ending soon or they may have been evicted. Well, so gosh, um, you know, as far as uh, the companies that you reached out to, you know, the management companies, you know, what else are they telling you? They're actually um, encouraging people to apply to multiple wait lists. Um, so, for example, one of my sources um, from Hawaii Affordable Properties, if she knows that um, they're at full capacity or they have a long wait list, they'll also point them to another property that has a lesser wait list. And she said the ultimate goal is to get people housed. And so, gosh, uh, you know, I know, you know, when you were trying to get information for this story, I mean, you know, how easy was it to to get a handle on what these wait lists are like? It was very frustrating because the state and the counties, they keep a general inventory of affordable housing, but not so much of an actual wait list. And you have people who are applying to multiple wait lists, so there's no precise number of how many people are actually waiting. But it's the responsibility of the property managers to keep individual waiting lists. So that was a little bit frustrating in my report to get the accurate number. And so, you know, I, you know, not too long ago, I happened to see, I think it was the state, um, you know, running an ad in the paper notifying that it was opening up its wait list because I guess they capped it. You know, those lists were so long and they were reopening it for some of their um, affordable housing projects. Um, but you were only focusing on the city for this story. Mostly the city and mostly the property managers or um, the service providers will let clients know um, when an affordable housing unit is opened up. And so, gosh, what else are, are, are you finding out, you know, as, as people try and get into uh, affordable units, you know, whether they're elderly or they're, you know, just younger people who just don't have the income uh, to afford um, other rentals? Property managers have been telling me it's a mix of all of those, but um, another struggle in my reporting is trying to find people who are on the wait list, but they may not feel comfortable actually speaking up about their situation because um, they feel that they may be stigmatized. Um, but other things I've been finding, for example, like Mark Development, which has uh, 16 affordable housing projects, um, that's 876 units across the state. Um, they have more than 1,300 households currently on the wait list, but their wait list is between six months to a little over two years. Wow, so it's kind of scary. I mean, if you've got a deadline, you've got to move. You don't want to become homeless. You want a roof over your head. Exactly, and um, another property manager said it could be very disruptive too. And also what I found interesting is um, people have been declining uh, job promotions just so they can keep their affordable housing status because they're afraid they can't afford rent outside of the affordable housing market. You know, and we haven't even talked about uh, uh, units that, uh, I guess, are pet-friendly, 
right? I mean, that's a whole nother wrinkle. It's a challenge if you have a pet mm-hmm. because there are very few units out there uh, that are open. Yeah, that's definitely true. And it's not um, clear whether these affordable housing units actually allow pets. But I do remember moving out here. I couldn't take my cat out here, for example, because I couldn't find an affordable place that actually allows pets. Yeah, you really have to uh, think long and hard about, you know, what you have to give up in order to find housing. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's Reality Check. You can read her stories on this issue. Head to civilbeat.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Kira Asatrian, author of Stop Being Lonely. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to create deep relationships and close friendships. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from SEEKS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter school in Honolulu for grades 6 to 8. Educating with a focus on community and stewardship, seeqs.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. We've got a story coming up that looks at the malign great white shark, and that got us thinking about our other fin friends for today's Backyard Quiz. Hawaii is home to approximately 40 distinct species of shark, and they are a common, if sometimes unwelcome, sight for surfers, divers, fishermen, and swimmers. Modern sharks evolved to their present form about 100 million years ago and have become a vital piece of marine ecosystems all across the globe. But shark populations are on the decline, and many species are in danger of extinction in the coming decades. And despite the often heard human disdain for them, the disappearance of sharks would have an overwhelmingly negative impact on our ocean's health, according to scientists. So we are giving them a shout out. There are five shark species commonly sighted near Hawaiian coastlines. For the answer to today's quiz, can you name three of them? And no, none of them are the great white. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NairitHawaii.com. The Netflix documentary, Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist, takes another look at the 2013 catfishing scandal that altered the life of Laia native and former professional football player Mantai Teo. Teo appears in the two-part film and revisits the events of the time. 
It also brings to light the story of Renaya Tua Asosopo, the young man who masqueraded as Teo's online girlfriend and who now lives as a transgender woman named Naya. The documentary is co-directed by Tony Vainuku, a filmmaker of Tongan descent who grew up in Utah. His first film, In Football We Trust, takes a look at the rise of Pacific Islander players in the NFL. The conversations Russell Subiano got a chance to talk to uh, Vainuku as he was waiting at the airport for a flight. First, I wanted to tell you that I did watch the documentary. I wasn't going to watch it at first because I didn't want to see Manti go through it again. Right. But my son convinced me to watch it, and so I did, and I'm glad I did. Can you right. talk about the timing of the film? Why did you feel the world was ready for it now? So, you know, the I can't take credit for the fact that the idea of it being made, because 10 years later, you have the Way Brothers, who are great filmmakers. They had did Wild Wild Country, and they had, you know, just ran into the Untold series that they were executive producing and show running. And so this was one of their ideas to do the Manti Teo story. For me personally, I relate a lot to you where I knew the story. I wasn't going to try to like lift the hood on that Mm -hmm. just because, you know, obviously I want to tell Polynesian stories, but I don't want to go into a space that just ruined a guy without me really knowing. So when the Way Brothers came to me 10 years later, and they kind of have a little bit of a formula, they feel like any stories that are 10 years out are just far enough that they remember and can and and everybody else remembers, but also far enough to be away from it, right? And be yeah. ready to tell. I think sometimes when as filmmakers, when you tell stories too early, a lot of times the audience isn't ready, nor is the person that's wanting to tell it, you know, like without Manta being ready in this ultimately, this story isn't the same movie, you know. So the time of timing of it is a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit lucky, but when they came to me. I had the same reservations as you. I was like, I'm not going to come on as a director if we're going in there to exploit this kid again with us, nobody knowing. Right. So I said, before I I, I take this role, I want to talk to him. You know, I want to get him on the phone. And so I never met Manti or, or knew him. And so but I knew Haloti Nata that was and Troy Palomalu, who was on my first film. But I called Haloti and had him, you know, get me with Manti. And man, it was within two days I was on, on Zoom with Manti. After that call, you know, like I just I knew he was ready and he felt like there was something to say, you know, he what, he, he felt closure already. But he yeah. but I had to help him understand, like, man, after what you're telling me right now, the world needs to hear this. Yeah. And so, you know, it's time. And uh, anyways, we went through like, you know, about a month or two process to where he prayed and mm-hmm. went through with the family and all that. And that's how that's how it all came about. But so the idea was the Way Brothers wanted to add it to their second series of Untold. And then I was fortunate enough to be able to get the access with Manti and, and go from there. I think I read somewhere that he wouldn't do it unless Naya told her side of it as well. Was that is that accurate? And then what did it take to convince Naya to tell her story? So first and foremost, like, yes, when he decided to do it, he said, Tone, if I'm going to do this, he goes, it's 100% because obviously, you know, the trust that we have, I'm not doing it for anybody else, you know, and he says that over and over. But it was that we don't leave any stone uncovered. Like we flip everything. He said, uh, we need to have Naya on here. At, well, obviously he doesn't know it's Naya at this point, but he mm-hmm. said, we need to have her Naya on here. He says, it just, everything has to be there because I don't ever want to talk about this again. Yeah. He said, I want to retell my story, but I don't want to relive the trauma. Right. Yep. And that was the big risk. And so he, he's just like, so if that's the case, you know, I, I have a list of people that you need to talk to on my side. And then, you know, you guys go approach Renaya and, and do what you do. Obviously, he doesn't have he never contacted Renaya yeah. ever since then. But it was important to him that, that she was involved or, or for him again, he but like she was involved in the telling of this because he just didn't want, again, questions or any suspicion, whatever. Then it's like, oh, man, I'm going through this again because I didn't do it the right way. And so, yeah, that 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 was the case. That was kind of the process with him. As far as Renaya went, Duffy, my co-director, had access to Renaya before I came on. Okay. So he had already contacted Renaya, gained that trust. Renaya had agreed to come on. And that's when they contacted me because they're like, oh, well, now that Renaya is coming on, like, we really need Manti and he doesn't want anything to do with anybody. And so that's kind of how it went down. Duffy had that relationship with Naya, and then I gained the relationship with Manti and everybody. 
and then the rest is history as far as like yeah. interviews and whatnot. So how long did that whole process take from inception to getting everybody together and then finally releasing it out on Netflix? So we all started working on it in 2020. And so it, it has been what, 2021? Yeah, so it's been the last couple of years. I think for, for Duffy and the Way Brothers and them contacting Renaya, I think they were probably on it maybe six months before that, mm -hmm. you know, just trying to get access to, and then I came on. Yeah, so it's been about three years, two to three years, yeah. So relatively quick then in, in terms of, of how documentaries usually get made. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and I think that's just like a misunderstanding with the, what people understand uh, how documentary films make it. So like my first film was a Verite film. I followed the kids for four years. This is a different style. It's in retrospect. So it's already happened. Yeah. So we're really interviewing that and then going to get archival footage and stuff that exists, whereas we're not following him in real time. Right. Yeah. So a lot of times these types of documentaries maybe are probably an average of two to three years versus four to five, you know. You know, one of the things that I remember when this went down for Manti is I remember the jokes and the jabs that that the world took on social media. And, you know, here in Hawaii, we, we take a lot of pride in our local athletes and we take a lot of pride in Polynesian athletes in, in general. I feel like when the world saw this happen to Manti, I feel like it changed the perception of Polynesians, you know, whether you're Hawaiian or Samoan or Tongan. How do you think what happened to him impacted the world's view of Polynesians? As far as after the movie came out? Like after it happened. Oh, after yeah. it happened. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, again, during that time, as far as my experience yeah. with it, I wasn't one to, I was never been one to like dig in and, and on stuff I don't know about. Right. But I feel with such little representation of Polynesians in general, you know, it was devastating. Yeah. Right. To have one of our heroes just defamed like that and defaced in, in every way and us not know the details of it, right? But instead jump on and, and onto the negative side of it. So absolutely, I think it was, it's always detrimental. Even, even now we don't really have huge representations and the ones we do have representation of like The, the Rock, of course, Dwayne Johnson and Taika Waititi, you know, out of New Zealand, you know, it's still very small. Uli Latukefu, you know, who's acting now with The Rock, I mean, in this industry, it's still very small. You know what I mean? I think it's, it's totally detrimental to such when we, you have such little representation. Yeah. In, in recent years, we've all become more aware of the role of the Mahu in Polynesian cultures and how they view gender and identity. Do you think that Ronaya would have walked a different path and Manti would have not gone through this? If there had been more awareness about different views of gender and identity 10, 15, 20 years ago? Man, that is a good question, my man. That's a very good and complex question. I, I definitely can't answer that completely. What would have happened and what wouldn't have happened? What I can speak to is my personal experience with the openness with parents and yeah. Polynesian culture, I feel is very important, you know, and I date myself with, I mean, I, I grew up pretty old school where, where the father is, I speak, you listen, as long as you're a kid, you know what I mean? There wasn't a lot of like back and forth, you know, so I do feel it's important, of course, to, to be more open to, to what's going on, what the current circumstances are. For me personally, as far as this situation, I mean, it's pretty complex. You know, yeah. there's, there's things to Naya's life that she had went through that, you know, we weren't able to put on the film that really, are tragic for her, you know, you know, and, and definitely do add to a little bit of that behavior. So, you know, I, again, it's a good question. Yeah. It's, it's, it's probably too complex for me to answer and generalize in that way. I, I can only speak to mine and, and yeah. let her speak to hers. Yeah, we may never know. We, ne we may never know. Is that something that you wanted viewers to take away from your film? What did you hope people would take away from the film? You know, at the end of the day, this film was about the human, a human experience and really, really giving, for, for me, as a filmmaker, the truth, right? Both sides, you know, unapologetic, you know, not, not, not being biased, you know, just letting the audience walk away with, you know, what are your thoughts on it? I don't want to lean one way or the other. I just want to tell it like it is, you know, like the, the, the film has a lot of groups involved, right, with it as far as Naya being transgender and whatnot. But that's not what it was about, you know, it was about, it was simply about these two people trying to connect 
and that ultimately ends in heartbreak and betrayal. You know what I mean? That's 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 something everybody can relate to. And I feel like in all my films that I've done, it's finding that universal appeal that that helps people understand the, the specifics of a culture, right? I mean, because at the end of the day, it is a Polynesian culture, a Polynesian experience, but we're all the same people in a lot of ways. And that's why the world is identifying with it and really relating to this. And I think relating on a human experience and taking and, and coming away with that is, is what I hope for and what is happening. Yeah. I, I know I personally took away that I ought to be more compassionate you know, I guess in general, I ought to be more compassionate for people, not just for people who are going through a hard time, but have gone through a hard time. And so I, I know that's what I took away from it. And I've seen a lot of people express their reaction on social media. Most of the reaction has been pretty positive. Most of them have been saying things like, oh, man, you know, I'm, I'm glad I know now. I feel so much, you know, I feel so terrible for Manti, but at least I know the whole story now. What kind of reaction have you seen to the film? It's been 95% positive, just like you're, you're getting back. I mean, everybody is walking away with the message, message of forgiveness. I, I'm telling you, people, doesn't matter the groups. They're holding each other accountable. They're getting accountable. I mean, people are admitting to their, their set, themselves making fun of him and asking for forgiveness. Yeah. It's bringing out a really special human, God, I mean, I don't know, attribute in everybody. I mean, like, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, me and Manti talk, you know, three times a day. And are just so happy. I couldn't be more happy for the guy. Like he's just winning now. And and I and I always say this. I say this every time I I get a chance to say it. Is he's he came back to reclaim everything he lost yeah. and more. You know. I, I feel like now people are seeing what he's like as a human being and not just a football player. Mm -hmm. And that's what the movie's about. Yeah, I think that's so important that that people see him as a, as a human being and not just this, you know, insane tackling machine. So that's definitely something that came across to me as well. Thank you so much for your time, Tony. I really enjoyed talking to you, man. All right, my man. That was filmmaker Tony Vainuku talking with HPR's Russell Subiano. Vainuku says he's currently working on a miniseries based on the life of Hall of Fame football player and fellow Polynesian Junior Seau. The Netflix documentary that he co-directed, Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist, which focuses on the 2013 catfishing scandal involving Hawaii's Manti Teo, is streaming now. Here's a trailer. Manti Teo had an absolutely astounding senior year. His grandmother and girlfriend, Lene Kikua, had died the same night. He dedicated his season to them. It was an amazing story. I mean, they were with me, you know. I miss them. One problem, his girlfriend did not exist. I don't think anyone can appreciate how big a story it became. This was a very sophisticated hoax, perpetrated for reasons we can't understand. At this point, I'm at the Heisman ceremony. I don't know what to think, and I can't tell anybody what's going on. He'll never say it affected his play, but you could definitely see something was up. We just thought, what sick joke is someone trying to put on us? My uncle immediately said, I think you're getting catfished. All right, ready to roll, man? Yeah. I created this fictional character, Lene. I totally felt fear. I didn't have courage to just be like, this is who I am. It became evident that we had a major story. I was afraid this was going to affect my NFL future. I don't think he had any concept of how much the media will build you up and then tear you down. I didn't expect it to blow up so quickly. This is about to hit the fan. That's when everything went chaotic. There were two people. It was crazy. My whole world changed, and I'm questioning everything. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. I'm Bert Lam. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we find out about a biannual technology conference called Pacific Tech 2022. 
Learn how innovative tech companies have an opportunity to connect with potential customers. Learn about America's Seed Fund program and chart a path to commercialization. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. On view now, cross-pollination, flowers across the collection, explores the emotional, psychological, and spiritual resonance of flowers in art. HonoluluMuseum.org. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Grab your binoculars. We've got a teeny tiny honey creeper on Kauai that weighs less than a third of an ounce. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo biology professor Patrick Hart with your Manu Minute. The Anianiao is the smallest living Hawaiian honey creeper, weighing just nine grams or about a third of an ounce. Ani'aniao are endemic to Kauai, meaning that they're found there and nowhere else. Males are brilliant yellow, and the females are slightly duller, which makes it easy to tell them apart. Like most Hawaiian birds, the best way to find them is by listening for their song, which can be described as a sweet, fast-paced trill. A recent study by the Lohe Lab at UH Hilo compared the song of modern-day Ani'aniao to those from way back in the 1970s and found some really big differences, with the current birds singing much less complex and elaborate songs. This is likely because males have far fewer other birds to learn their songs from than they did in the recent past. Ani'aniao are also related to, and look a bit like, the Kauai Amakihi, but are smaller and have a much shorter bill. This allows them to specialize on a different set of flowers and insects for their food, which may be a way for the two species to reduce competition for similar resources in the forest, which is known as niche partitioning. Ani'aniao were originally found all across Kauai, however they're now restricted to living at the very top of the island, in the Koke'e and Alaka'i region. This contraction of their range is mostly due to the invasion of disease-carrying mosquitoes that are increasing in elevation as temperatures warm with climate change. Most recent population estimates indicate there may be up to 8,000 of these birds remaining, so they're doing a bit better than their Kauai cousins, like the Akikiki and the Akeke'e, which are in danger of extinction in just the next few years. The best thing we can do to protect our remaining Ani'aniao and other native forest birds is to support ongoing mosquito control and eradication efforts on Kauai and all the other islands. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for HPR comes from the Waiakea Water Kokua Initiative, dedicated to helping in the areas of education, conservation, and kupuna care throughout the Hawaiian Islands. Learn more at waiakea.com. Today in our Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name three of the shark species most commonly seen around the coastal waters of Hawaii. Sharks' importance to the ocean is often overlooked, and fear of their presence has led to a disregard for the importance of protecting shark populations. As an apex predator, sharks are responsible for keeping the marine ecosystem in balance. They remove sick, weak, and old members of fish populations, helping to keep schools healthy and strong. They even help prevent overgrazing of seagrass. Hawaii is home to dozens of shark species, but only a handful are a common sight. They include white-tip reef, black-tip, tiger, sandbar, and scalloped hammerhead. And our winner today, Glenelg Jordan from Haleiwa, says that she often sees these types of sharks when she's in the ocean. 
That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. favorite made it back to the big screen over the Labor Day weekend. Steven Spielberg's OG blockbuster Jaws has been re-released to theaters for folks who missed the original premiere 47 years ago. And five decades hasn't dampened the cinematic terror of the film's Big Daddy, a mega large great white shark. But has Jaws contributed to the great white's bad rap? Photographer David Fleetham certainly thinks so. He's traveled the world taking photographs of great white sharks in the hopes that folks might see the ocean creatures in a new light. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about his 30-year-long crusade. I have to ask, if, if you're not afraid of sharks, David, what are you afraid of? People often ask me about the fear of sharks, and I, I tell them my greatest fear about sharks is that they won't come close enough to me to get a decent image. That, that's my greatest fear. Un- underwater, the clearest images are shot through the least amount of water. So I use a, a wide-angle lens, and it, it means that the shark needs to be close. If you, if you try to photograph a shark 50 feet away, you're shooting through 50 feet of water that has all sorts of particles suspended in it, and it it's not going to end up being a clear image. So but my greatest fear of sharks is, uh, is that they won't come close enough to me. And, and any other fear is heights. I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with heights. Well, you and me can share that at least. Um, there we go. I'm curious, too, thinking about photographing primarily underwater and through the use of still images, movement through water is so different than movement on land. Movement and many other things. What have you noticed about just how the world underwater moves and how do you try to capture that in your photography? I shoot now, of course, with a a digital camera, but I've been, I photographed in British Columbia for 10 years before I moved to Hawaii in 1986. So I, you know, for the first several decades, I, uh, I shot with film. And the, the digital world has brought such a change, not only to above water, but especially underwater, because previously you would have 36 pictures. You can't change a roll of film underwater. So I would go down and, and be only able to, to shoot 36 pictures. So those 36 were, were like, each one was like a jewel, and I would take my time while I was down there and make sure that the picture I was about to take is is worth one of these 36 that I'm going to be able to shoot on a single dive. And now in the digital world, you can shoot, you know, hundreds, even thousands of still images. When I, when I switched to digital, it probably took me at least a year to get out of that mindset of should I take the picture or not. Now with digital, you just take the picture, pull the trigger, and uh, and worry about it on the computer later on. So I, I delete a lot more, and uh, and certainly shoot a lot more. Is there a particular encounter with a shark that really just stayed with you in all the work that you've done? I would say the great whites are uh, are you know the one critter that uh, that definitely is the most memorable they're just bigger they're just more awesome looking so uh so i i certainly think back to all my encounters with uh with great white i did shoot uh many years ago in uh out of thailand i went up into burma which is now Myanmar, and uh shot silver tip sharks on uh on a reef area up in that spot known as the the Burma Banks, and silvertip sharks are uh, are reasonably threatening in that you you want to keep an eye on them. And there were you know a twelve or twenty on the reef, 
that had been fed before, so they were comfortable with divers and would would come in close. And uh, and this was back in the film days, and uh, got all sorts of shots with them. And when digital came around, I was like, oh, I got to get got to get back up to Myanmar and and shoot those. And sadly, heard that uh, the entire population on the Burma banks was wiped out once it was publicized that. You know, there were all these sharks up there. The fishermen moved in, and sadly, there are no more silvertip sharks on the Burma banks any longer. Mm, Do you ever have hesitations as someone who is documenting these populations that you might be revealing their secrets and incidentally making them more vulnerable? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. And over time... There have been um, areas in the world where uh, sharks have been baited and come in in big numbers. Uh, And a few times that has caused those populations to dwindle. But more and more um, an understanding has come about where the areas where they do feed sharks, the sharks are now protected because they're a big money maker for the nearby people. In, in Fiji, for instance, in uh, Benga Lagoon, there's several resorts that, uh, that feed. Um, initially, it was tiger sharks, but now they're getting bull sharks and black tips and several species. And the, the villages in Fiji own the ocean out in front. So the resorts that use the ocean and are feeding the sharks uh, give a kickback to the village. And the village now realizes that those animals are much more valuable alive than dead. And uh, And so the village has stopped fishing in the area and protects that as a as a marine resource. There was a uh, was a one of the guides on the boat, or was a, a ranger, basically, for the reserve. And uh, he got a call from the village chief, and the village chief said, oh, there's a dead tiger shark. It, it washed up on the beach, and uh, and he's telling me the story. And he says, so I, I got down to the beach, and uh, there was the tiger shark, and he's got a Fijian accent. And he said, there's... It was a huge shark. I recognized it. I knew which shark it was, and it had a hose in its mouth. And I was like, what? It, it had a hose in its mouth. I was like, I, and, and so I repeated back to him. I said, a hose? He goes, no, no, a horse. And I was like, what? And so this shark, they, in Fiji, they uh, exercise their horses in the ocean. They have them swim. And this tiger shark had come up from behind a small horse, grabbed it by the, uh, the back end, and one of its legs went through its gills, and the shark drowned, and that's how it died. But uh, that's just one of the crazier stories. Wow. Horse versus shark. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. <laughs> I... Yeah. The shark must have looked up and gone, oh, my God, is it my birthday? There's this giant mammal up there swimming around. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, it's interesting hearing you describe people taking efforts to protect sharks because they are economically valuable, but looking at them, too, and the role that they play in a given ecosystem and what they indicate about that ecosystem's health. Generally, in media, for instance, in Jaws, I feel like sharks are portrayed as anomalies. You have a beautiful sandy beach. People are playing, having a wonderful time, and then everything grows quiet because there's a shark there, and the expectation is that shark is not where it's supposed to be. What do we actually know about the presence of sharks? Where should they be, and what role do they play in a healthy ecosystem? Well, they, they are one of the determining factors of whether or not a, uh, a reef is healthy, and the ocean is is their home. It's not it's not our home. We go out and play in their world, and we have to realize that that they are out there. Um, people ask me how how do you know if there's a, if there's a shark out there, and I 
I tell them when well, you dip your finger in the ocean and then taste the water, and if it's salty, it means there's a shark out there. <laughs> there's there's sharks. That's that's their home. That's where that's where they live, and that's where they're they're meant to be, and and that's where they do a, a great job cleaning up and keeping those reefs healthy. They, uh, you know, sick and wounded animals they cull out of fish populations so that uh, that that population remains healthy. Mm, mm. So they're, they serve kind of as a population check, as it were. Yes. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, you'll, you'll see sharks hanging out with, you know, reefs filled with healthy fish, and they swim through them. They're, they're not after fish that are not healthy for the most part. If you see a shark underwater, you should count yourself as, as being very lucky. There are areas on the planet where some species are, for the most part, extinct, where there used to be thousands of them. That was David Fleetham, the underwater photographer who's dedicated his life to getting as close to sharks as possible. Uh, he spoke with Conversation Savannah Harriman Pote. He, uh, Fleetman is giving uh, a talk on his life's work today at 5.30 p.m. as part of the Maui Nui Marine Resource Council's monthly Know Your Ocean Speaker Series. We'll have more information on our website later today. have to go now but up tomorrow scientists are wary as avian flu has been found not just in seals in maine but a dolphin in florida what does that mean to our critters here in the pacific got a story you'd like to share leave your feedback on our talk back line 808-792-8217 post your comments on facebook email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org and all of our shows are archived on our website I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.